special delivery. The delivery of that which is uncommon. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Monday, December 18th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on the show, Jamie Lauren Kalis goes backstage at SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, to talk about bringing a cartoon into the real world. And I talk to Anne Derek Gaillot about Bad Baby and the new model of a teen star. Here's the dispatch. Culture. SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, opened in New York this month. It follows the eponymous talking yellow kitchen sponge on a mission to save the underwater town of Bikini Bottom from being destroyed by a volcano. The show set in costumes are full of found objects like bleach bottles, Mylar balloons, and gift bows. And the songs are written by the likes of John Legend, Brian Eno, Cindy Lauper, and Sarah Bareilles. This could have been a recipe for a cartoon musical gone wrong. But Jamie Lauren Kalis saw the show for the outline last week and came away impressed. She also sat down with one of the designers on the show to learn how this cartoon world makes sense on stage. Hi, Jamie. Hello. There's a lot of skepticism, I think, around the show, at least for maybe snooty theater goers that are like, SpongeBob SquarePants is another big budget, you know, Disney-fied musical that's not to be taken seriously. But you spoke to to David Zinn, the set and costume designer, and got a sense of what they wanted to do with this massive budget and resources with the set and everything like that. So what did he tell you about his vision for the show and what he wanted to bring to the stage? So I met David Zinn backstage in sort of a 45-minute period before that night's show went up. So I guess it was on a Thursday, a couple days after the show had opened. Hi. Hey, Jamie. Oh, so good to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. And he just kind of walked me through what it was like to come on board and work with uh, Tina, the director, Tina Landau. And he signed on five years ago, and that was before the show even had a script or a story. And so we had the freedom to really experiment, and part of that experimentation was physical, there was clowning stuff, there was hip-hop, you know, there was dancing, there was, you know, how, how, do we, how do we do a few, how do we tell a few kinds of stories in different physical ways? I think in the age after, like, Up or, like, a lot of Pixar movies, now there has to be sort of this grander aesthetic vision for what something for children can be. Can you describe what the show looks like? That's a big question, but I guess let me just try to do it in the most concise way possible. So, ah, good morning, world, and all who inhabit it. The principal characters are people, not foam suits. They're just regular people, and like each one has one or two things that references the character. All the characters in the chorus have crazy costumes that are like almost inhuman looking that involve umbrellas and mylar balloons and weird sweaters from Etsy stitched together with kind of like big balloony looking things. Then the set is just, it's made all from normal stuff, just like household objects, but none of those objects are immediately recognizable. So it involves like a lot of tires and rusty appliances and oil barrels and just anything that has to do with undersea life. And it all comes together in a way that feels just really natural and really immersive, but also 
when you're looking at it over the course of the show, you start seeing almost like an I Spy book. You start realizing what things are made out of. I found this like architects had done this kind of beautiful like landscaped rooftop with pool noodles, and I was like, oh duh, pool noodles are a amazing, b everywhere, c in lots of really fun colors. So let's get a bunch of pool noodles. You know, we used like Kenny Scharf is an artist that I really love, and he threw these kind of crazy blacklight parties that had his sort of pseudo 60s pop sensibility as smashed with the 80s and the East Village and celebration and um, uh, so we looked at a lot of his installations which were really fun. You know, Mylar balloons became like a really fun thing for us. Um, you know, boom boxes, surfboards, um, red, red solo cups, sponges, kitchen sponges. A missed opportunity if you're not going to do that. So what if I'm a sponge? It's what I want to be. There isn't anyone who stretches like me. When I think about shows that kind of fall into the same category of like really big budget productions that adapt something everyone knows pretty well, Lion King is obviously the one that comes to mind. Was that a show that informed his decisions about how to tackle a story like SpongeBob? I asked him about this, especially because like I'm not a I'm not like a theater critic or a person who even sees that much theater. And that's one of the things I have seen on Broadway. And I think that holds true for a lot of people is that like if you're a kid and you go see one thing on Broadway, it might be The Lion King. And he said The Lion King was a source of inspiration for him in terms of how much work went into considering how animals could come to the stage. I think what Julie Taymor did in The Lion King to kind of translate the sort of animal world into a human world. It was really beautiful and, and it wasn't the, the scale of that imagination and that imaginative leap, I think, was really a, an inspiration. But, uh, but mostly just our own kind of weird, you know, like weird stuff. We really liked rock shows and being at the Pyramid Club in the 80s and watching, you know, crazy drag and all that <laughs> stuff. And I think all that energy, that's sort of the energy we drew on. Can you talk about the physicality of the show and how that played out on stage? A, a thing that a lot of people like a cart- about cartoons, me included, is that they abide by their own laws of physics, but they're consistent. So, like, something like Wiley e. Coyote running off a cliff and then hanging in the air for a minute before he realizes he's run off the cliff and plummets to the ground, that's the kind of thing that cartoons can do that the stage can't. And something I was really interested in is when I spoke to David is asking him about how did they kind of reach that same sense of surprise without being able to transcend the laws of Newtonian mechanics. Again, I credit Tina for really, you know, building a movement vocabulary for how we translate cartoon logic, which is what, you know, what you called it and what we called it, into normal physics logic. And then, and, and defying that logic is part of what happens in cartoons. And so we tried to find as many places where we could, you know, they could behave in ways that defied our sort of expectations about how how the physical world works. It, it, was, it was this sort of unified effort to create cartoon physics on the stage that didn't really fall to any of the trans- traditional roles of the theater. So, like, it wasn't just the choreographer. It wasn't just the Foley artist. It wasn't just, like, uh, the costumes. It was sort of this convergence of all the things to make these little tricks on stage that delivered the same sense of surprise as a cartoon. SpongeBob, get in the kitchen! It's opening time! Was the show good? Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. And, like, I... I mean, I, I fear that I have the thing where, like, anytime I write about anything, I get too sucked into it as an interest, and then I'm like, oh, this is, like, what I live and die by. Like, I'm a SpongeBob person now. But I really do think, like, it just had so many things to offer someone that isn't a SpongeBob fan and isn't a child. Like, it just, every around every turn, it continually surprised in the way that I think I never realized as a child that cartoons could. Keep on. 
Jamie Lauren Kalis is a writer based in New York. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Culture. Danielle Bergoli, a.k.a. Bad Baby, leapt into the pop culture canon through her infamous appearance on Dr. Phil last fall. And all these hoes laughing like something funny. She's talking about the audience, that they're laughing at her. Did, did you say the, the, the hoes are laughing? Yep. So the audience are a bunch of hoes? Yep. Catch me outside, how about that? Huh? Catch me outside, how about that? Catch you outside? What does that mean? What I just said. Catch her outside means she'll go outside and do what she has to do. Her catch me outside phrase catapulted her into meme stardom and made way for a burgeoning music career. And Derek Gaillot is here to talk about what Bergoli meant for culture in 2017 and who gets to have 15 minutes of fame. Hi, Anne. Hey, Aaron. What interests you about Dana Bergoli? Well, I, when I was younger, I really, really loved watching the bad kids episodes of uh, daytime talk shows. But, you know, I just became obsessed with reality TV after that. So when Danielle Brigoli came onto the scene, I was not that interested in her. But when her song High Bitch came out, I was, like, almost mad at myself that I liked the song so much. White Jays, white Porsche, white wrist, white horse, high bitch, high bitch, high bitch, high bitch. Why do you think that she is internet famous? I think she's internet famous because she's a white girl who has long acrylic nails and hoop earrings and talks with a black scent. So I think people found that really fascinating for some reason. I think people find um, troubled girls really fascinating. So I think that's why she's internet famous. I feel like the conversation around around Bad Baby shifted really quickly because at first people were very quick to sort of like demonize her. But then she put out this song, mm-hmm. people just sort of rallied around her and it was like, it sort of eliminated or erased a lot of that controversy around her and turned her into this, this figure of, of, of like power and of rec- like reclaiming your identity and all these things. But she's still this white girl who is putting on all of this stuff. Right. And, but, you know, I still, a lot of people really love her music, but I still think there's a lot of hate around her. Like, I listened to High Bitch on the subway on the way in, and the, like, genius annotation was, whether you like it or not, Bad Baby has a hit song. So I think there's still, a, like, some hate around her, but definitely now people are willing to, like, sweep that criticism aside because of this, like, banging song. What does this do for black girls, then, who you know, similarly were in positions like Danielle on Dr. Phil or other shows where they're also paraded onto television shows and, and made fun of. But one of the things that you touched on in your story is that they don't get record deals. Um, what separates them from, from Danielle, aside from the obvious? Yeah, I think people, when there's a black girl who is acting out or whatever, or is perceived to be acting out, people are just expect that they, that she's a lost cause and she has nothing to offer. She's just a spectacle for us to look at. So I'm like a lot of criticism around Danielle centered on her getting like unwarranted attention. So I think for some black girls, it could, her 
fame could be really discouraging. Even though we've seen this like troubled white girl narrative before, America never gets tired of this assumption that white girls are going to be better behaved. And so it's novel when they don't, when they're bad. Right, right. What do you think about the future for for Bad Baby? Because I think that High Bitch is, I agree, like a, a good song. It's got a great beat. It is very fun to sing along to. It's pretty short, too, so it's kind of an in-and-out situation. Mm. And, you know, it has all the trappings of a successful uh, song. But is she just a, you know, one-hit wonder? Is she going to have continued success? I'm not convinced that she's going to have a lot of success just because of this, like the spectacle that brought her to fame. I think it's going to be a toss-up, but like personally, I don't know her. I hope that she can just go back to being a regular kid someday. She already put out a banger. She doesn't need to. I don't know if she wants to. I'm not convinced that she's going to have longevity, but I wish her the best. Why you counting all that money that we got? I ain't worried about no baby. And Derek Gallo is a staff writer here at the Outline. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Aaron. That's it for today's Dispatch. But you can catch us here tomorrow and every morning, Monday through Thursday, by subscribing to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or whatever app you use to listen. I'm Aaron Edwards. Thanks so much for listening.